Welcome to today's podcast hosted by Reflux UK. I'm Nick Boyle, founder and upper GI surgeon. So today we're going to be discussing surgery for gastroesophageal reflux disease. For many people, I think particularly some clinicians, having an operation to treat reflux symptoms seems almost extreme. Certainly, when I talk to many of my primary care GP friends and colleagues, they most often view it that way. And they can't really imagine recommending surgery to their patients with reflux. In many ways, that's easy to understand in the context of the history of surgery for reflux. I personally can remember as a surgical registrar at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, looking after a woman who'd had an open fundification operation through a large incision in her upper abdomen. And she developed pneumonia and a partial collapse of her lung postoperatively. And it would have taken her many months to get over surgery. But much has changed over the last 10 to 20 years. An understanding that uh, the medications, which are so widely prescribed, aren't always as effective as perhaps once was thought. And that despite taking these powerful antacid tablets, including PPIs, many patients continue to experience really troubling symptoms. And of course, there's also evidence that uh, these drugs may be associated with adverse problems. And of course, there's the relationship of reflux with Barrett's and esophageal cancer. But especially we've seen the evolution of minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery and other new technologies in more recent years, which have brought an increasing number of new options for the treatment of people with reflux symptoms. Today, I'm truly delighted to welcome two genuine experts in the surgical treatment of gastroesophageal reflux disease. John Lippham is Professor of Surgery at the University of Southern California where he's chief of division of upper GI and general surgery. He trained extensively in the US, but I'm very pleased to remind him that he also spent time as a senior registrar training in Plymouth in the UK. He took over his chair from Tom Demista, who is a giant or was a giant of uh, upper GI surgery and has built on the department's international reputation as a world leader in upper GI surgery and especially GERD, as it's known in the US. He's published very widely on on the pathophysiology and surgical treatment of reflux. And despite his modesty, it's not an overstatement to say that he has become one of, if not the global expert on link surgery. He's founder and president of the American Foregut Society. Sebastian Schottman is professor of surgery at the University Hospital in Vienna and is a specialist in functional and oncological upper GI surgery. Like John Lippham, he's filling giant shoes as one of the founders of abdominal surgery, Theodore Billroth, who, of course, gives his name uh, to gastric, several gastric operations, was previously professor of surgery in Vienna. Sebastian specializes in anti-reflux surgery, and he's published widely on the subject. Uh, he's an acknowledged leader and expert in European reflux surgery, and he is co-founder of the European Foregut Society and its vice president. Gentlemen, very much uh, welcome to today's podcast. Sebastian, perhaps I can just start with you. Perhaps we can set the context of the size of the problem, how many people in the Western world have reflux, to give people just an idea of, of, of what it is that those treating reflux face. Well, Nick, let me first say thank you very much for inviting me here. It's a great thing to do. And to go to jump into the topic directly, I would say 
You know, we say today there is like 15 to 20 percent of the Western population really suffer from gastroesophageal reflux disease. We would say that around 20 percent like have weekly uh, symptoms or weekly typical symptoms due to the reflux disease. And there's about 10 percent of the of people having almost daily uh, symptoms. And just to give you some more numbers to draw to show you how big the problem is, for example, there is quite quite impressive uh, numbers uh, for the U.S. concerning the financial burden of GERD treatment. So we know in the U.S. there is spent more than $10 billion a year for the treatment of GERD. And if you even include patients who have like not the typical uh, symptoms from GERD, it's, even, it's, it's, almost, it's almost $50 billion a year. And just to bring this in relation, um, the costs for cancer care in the U.S. is $60 billion a year. So this is some numbers who, that really show us how big the problem itself is. So it is, a, it is an enormous problem. It's a widespread, um, significant proportion of the adult population have problems. But I think there's very often quite a lot of confusion as to what true gastroesophageal reflux disease is. Um, because, of course, there's a crossover with other conditions. Now, John, you run a, a lab um, in in your department looking at uh, patients with reflux symptoms. You you measure reflux, you measure esophageal and gastric function. Perhaps you can just give us an idea of, of, of what causes reflux. What do you find when you perform these measurements on people and how do they help you in, um, in making the right diagnosis? Well, first and foremost, Nick, uh, thank you for having me here today. It's quite the quite the honor. You know, I think the simplest way to understand all of this is, you know, reflux is really just a mechanical problem. Um, it's very similar to that leaky faucet at the house. Uh, the faucet leaks because the valve of that faucet isn't working well. Well, the same thing applies here for reflux. You're supposed to have a, a valve uh, or a barrier that will prevent things from coming back up into your esophagus. In fact, really the only way you get reflux of the gastric contents back up into the esophagus is when that barrier valve uh, isn't working correctly. Um, the only difference with reflux is that valve is really made up of really two components. Um, one is a little sphincter uh, that we have at the end of the esophagus, and the other component to that barrier um, is the, the structure of the diaphragm. Um, when that structure is intact, patients don't have what's called a hiatal hernia. That's where the stomach herniates through the diaphragm into the chest. When there is weakness in that diaphragm, that's what leads to the hiatal hernia uh, and also then contributes to reflux. So patients that come to our lab, when we uh, put them through a, a battery of tests, what we find is that they do indeed have a problem with that barrier, partly due to the structure of the diaphragm. Uh, and partly due to that weak sphincter. Uh, I think the big misconception out there is that this somehow is a problem with the acid production of the stomach. Patients come in and say, I, you know, I got more acid than other people. Well, no, that everybody has the same amount of acid. The only difference between somebody with reflux and somebody without reflux uh, is that barrier, which is preventing the stuff from coming back up. So, uh, I I guess that does bring us to the question about acid and non-acidic reflux, because 
Um, by common definition, gastroesophageal reflux disease is defined by excessive acid refluxing from the stomach into the esophagus. But perhaps you could just give us a, a feeling of um, what about non-acidic reflux? Uh, are there other components um, of the gastric juice which can cause irritation and provoke symptoms of reflux? Well, I think the answer to that is absolutely. Um, you know, the stomach contents are made up of a whole bunch of things besides acid, from bile to pancreatic enzymes to your own saliva to the food you've eaten. Uh, and again, it's a mechanical problem when that distal part of the esophagus or barrier isn't working, anything in your stomach can come up. And at times it'll be acidic if the acid production of the stomach is, is high, but at other times uh, it may be non-acidic uh, or even alkaline. Again, it's the same disease, whether it's acidic material coming up or non-acidic material coming up. Sebastian, John just mentioned hiatus hernias. I, I, I'm I'm, I'm sure we're all asked frequently by patients, so I've just been diagnosed with a hiatus hernia. Do I have to have that repaired? Um, if I have a hiatus hernia, does that mean I must have reflux? Just um, perhaps just build upon what John just said in terms of defining exactly what a hiatus hernia is and its contribution to reflux and the necessity to do something about it or not. Well, this is... This is a very important question, and I think this is also something we surgeons had to learn within the last years, and and it it bases on a discussion that has been built up many years from now on, where there was like the surgeons or the reflux thinkers who said, well, the problem with reflux is only the hiatal hernia, and if you really fix the hiatal hernia. Uh, you will fix the gastroesophageal reflux disease. And there was the guys, the surgeons, um, mainly coming from Los Angeles, said, well, but, you know, the most important thing is you just have to fix or you just have to help the lower esophageal sphincter do its job and then you will heal um, You will heal gastroesophageal reflux disease. Today we know, and this is what John Lippham just said, today we know that it's both of it. And we call it two sphincter hypothesis. So what... We know today is that the anti-reflux barrier really consists of two parts, the hiatal hernia, and the second part is the defect in the LES. The important thing is what we know today is hiatal hernia itself is not always or is very randomly is a real indication for treatment. So small hiatal hernia that does no symptoms does not have to be treated. The second thing is there is many patients who have gastroesophageal reflux disease and we wouldn't notice a hiatal hernia. So today we would say there is a lot of patients with, with, uh, with GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, uh, that don't have a hiatal hernia. Um, John Lippem, for example, says, well, they all have a hiatal hernia, but you, you can't see it. And this might be right because... Maybe the, the kind of how or the way how we measure hiatal hernia might not be sensitive enough. So the important thing at the end is um, hiatal hernia itself is not a reason for treatment. And the second one is there is a very tight connection between hiatal hernia and reflux disease. And the third one um, is, and this is mainly interesting for surgeons, um, in my opinion, there is today there is no anti-reflux surgery without any hiatal uh, hernia repair. This I think is very important if we talk about hiatal hernia and connection to reflux disease. 
So I think I think we'd probably all agree that uh, although we have um, a lot of technologies which uh, allow us to assess patients in a way that wasn't available a few years ago and be far more accurate with our diagnoses, there's still a lot we can't measure and there's a lot we don't quite have the tools yet to assess. But if we just move on a little bit then to thinking about how surgery fits into the treatment options. Of course, the vast majority of people with reflux don't need to have an operation um, and won't want an operation. And there are other ways that they can get relief from their symptoms. So, John, perhaps you, you could just give me your thoughts on where you think surgery fits in, in terms of indications in, in this large number of patients who present with symptoms. Well, I think for me, it boils down to really quality of life. Um, that's, to me, the main indication um, for a patient to consider surgery. If their quality of life is not good on their medical treatment for their reflux, then those are the people that potentially can benefit from having a procedure to fix the underlying problem, which again is that that valve. I think the, the, the big problem historically has been, I think most of the referring physicians associate, you know, surgery for reflux is this big, god-awful surgery through a 12-inch incision, patients in the hospital for a week, uh, lots of complications and side effects associated with it. And so the bar was quite high to send a patient for a procedure for reflux. But we've come a long way in the last 10 to 20 years, and now all the procedures are done minimally invasive or endoscopic, uh, they tend to be outpatient or overnight stay. Complication rates are extremely low and the, the side effects are, are minimal. And so I think that the balance is shifting towards at least thinking about, you know, surgery or a procedure to stop reflux um, because it is much less of a procedure nowadays. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, it, it comes down to quality of life. If patients aren't happy the way they are, they want to get off their medications those are the ones that I think really could benefit from a procedure to stop the reflux. Sebastian, would you like to add to that? Well, I think, you know, in, in the daily care, there is three, maybe four kind of patients that uh, come and we really think about having anti-reflux surgery done with them. And this is the, the patients who, um, who have, who, where PPIs don't work. They have typical symptoms, they have heartburn and the PPIs don't work. I mean, they're, they're for them, there might not be any alternative solution. Then there is the patients where the PPIs work, but they 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 are afraid of taking their PPIs for a long time, for maybe ever. And um, then there is a lot of patients where PPIs uh, used to work and does not work anymore. So this is patients we see quite a lot and we go for surgery with them. And then there's patients who have um, typical GERD symptoms, especially regurgitation. And we know, especially in those patients, for sure, medical treatment uh, might not help them help them at all. So this is, in my daily practice, is the four different characteristics of patients where we go for anti-reflux surgery. And I, and I suppose, uh, from my point of view, I, 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 uh, I wish that far more uh, physicians looking after patients with reflux will consider surgery in those patients in those groups you've just outlined because more often than not they just get given ever increasing doses of pills which don't work and they're never offered the option of thinking about surgery which I think we'd all agree would um, is a great shame. 
John, perhaps just we can think a little bit more about the test that you want to get, it, 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 you might want to have done in advance. Um, I think very often patients are a, a bit confused. Uh, they're told they've got reflux. They see their GP and they then come to see you and they assume that they should just proceed straight to have an operation. Maybe they've had an endoscopy and they've been told they've got a high dyspnea. But I think most centers that specialize in reflux will want to investigate their patients a little bit further, just to learn a little bit more about them, make sure that they are the right candidate for surgery. Could you just give give us an idea of what you're looking for, what you might want to get done and why you want to do to do that? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. Um, you know, first and foremost, we, we almost never just go off of a patient's symptoms uh, to determine whether or not they need surgery for their reflux. And the main reason for that is the fact that there are multiple other disorders you can have of the esophagus or stomach or even lungs that will lead to very similar symptoms and not be reflux. So doing surgery for reflux on those patients obviously isn't going to help them. So first and foremost, we want to make sure we've got the right diagnosis. Uh, We want to know the severity of the disease. And we want to make sure that that patient hasn't developed any complications or damage Um, from the reflux over the years. And so generally what we'll want to do is confirm that they have reflux, and that's best done through what's called pH testing. Um, And that's a method by which we can actually measure exactly how much reflux a patient is having. We know what normal is, we know what abnormal is, and we can determine the severity of the disease based on that test. The second thing we want to do is assess the strength of their esophagus. You can imagine that, you know, when you swallow, the esophagus squeezes to push your food down. If we as surgeons are going to go in there and do something to tighten up that barrier, we've got to make sure that the patient has enough strength uh, of their esophagus to kind of push it through that new, nice, tight valve. And so generally, we'll send the patients for evaluation of their strength or what's called a esophageal motility or manometry test. We're also going to want to assess the the size of their hiatal hernia, uh, the orientation of the hernia, all these things are important from a planning standpoint. And so generally, we'll also send them for what we call an upper GI or a barium swallow. So I think that to me, that's sort of the ideal workup for these patients to make sure we're treating the right disease and picking the right treatment option for them. And Sebastian, I mean, would you agree with that? Uh, is there anything that you wouldn't do that John has suggested or that you would do that he hasn't? Uh, generally, I would agree. I mean, you know, we have an ongoing discussion concerning the way how you can test the esophagus, how good it moves. And there is some tests like uh, we, we call it high resolution manometry, which means you can really um, see in quite in detail how the esophagus moves and there is new devices coming onto the market. Uh, We call them planometry, which maybe gives us even more ideas to certain areas of the, of the esophagus and the, the, the the muscle um, and how it works. I think I would absolutely agree with John that it is important to have an, an overview over the, the motility of the esophagus, uh, to have an overview on the the capacity the esophagus has and how big the chance is that it will be able to work against the new built anti-reflux uh, valve. 
and the rest might be a little bit academic. But however, I think this is an ongoing discussion. Um, we in our center still do both of it. We do like video uh, testing, smaller week strict testing, and we do this kind of higher resolution manometry. So that's great. So we, we've now defined the patient group. We've agreed that we need, that where surgery has a role is in treating patients who have uh, an erosion of their quality of life, which can't be treated in other ways. And we've agreed that we need to investigate those patients to make sure that we don't operate on people who aren't going to benefit and are going to uh, operate on people that will. And there's probably a lot more patients out there that would benefit than would benefit from surgery who currently are offered surgery. I think we've agreed that. So let's now just talk about what the options are and what we can offer those patients. We'll, we'll perhaps go through them one at a time. So we'll start with the the traditional uh, option, which is called fundification. So Sebastian, perhaps we could come to you on this. There's quite a lot of confusion. We've obviously moved from the open to the laparoscopic uh, era in the last 20 years, but there are different types of fundification. Perhaps you could just briefly give us a, 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 a synopsis of what fundification involves, what the uh, different types of fundification are in principle, and also just give us an idea of why, despite the fact that these operations have been around for a long time, they've never really been that popular. Well, I think it's quite clear. Anti-reflux surgery today is minimally invasive. So there is no more open anti-reflux surgery. So generally, this means that this, the surgery takes like a half or an hour, maybe a little bit more like three quarters of an hour is done laparoscopically, which means it's done with like four to five, maybe three small incisions. This is quite common for all kinds of anti-reflux surgery. The different kinds of fundoplications, you know, there has been quite a lot of developments within the last years. This, they, they, mainly, they mainly differ in the way you do the wrap. You can wrap around when you take the stomach and wrap it around the esophagus. You can do it like 360 degrees. You can go down to 70 degrees. You can only do like 90 degrees. There's there's been quite a lot of discussion and there's been quite a lot of publication of science with this. I think nobody today can really say the one is much better than the other one. I think there are some key issues that are more important than comparing those different kind of technical details. I think the most important thing besides the, the good selection, the good patient selection we have been discussing, is for sure the highly the highly specialization. So this is something that is very important. We Today we know that if patients are treated for reflux disease and if they're treated in a conservative way or especially if they're treated surgically, it is so important for them to have it been done in a specialized center for it. We know results and outcome in specialized anti-reflux centers are much better than in in small clinics where numbers of where surgical numbers are much lower. And the second point is I think it is very important for each individual surgeon to have his method highly standardized. I think it is very important that the numbers of a surgeon, the surgical procedures he does per year are quite high and quite high was mean around 
up to 100, more than 100 anti-reflux procedures a year, in my opinion, and should be highly standardized. The, the bad um, reputation we have seen within the last years, well, the, the story is there were some years where, where a lot of physicians thought that maybe in, in many patients the PPIs could really replace fundopication. There were some studies showing that results uh, achieved with, with medical treatment for almost all patients having GERD um, were much better than those in, uh, in patients that went for, for uh, surgical anti-reflux uh, treatment, especially concerning side effects that were observed. Um, but I think the big problem with this was that mainly the already mentioned more often, the selection was not the right one. And the second one was that the kind of surgery we did in those days, which was something completely different we did today, we do today. And especially also the technical, the technical details and the technical possibilities were less developed than they are today. So I think what we observe today, some kind of renaissance of anti-reflux, of surgical anti-reflux treatment, and I think we should really get rid of this bad image uh, anti-reflux surgery, especially fundoplication has. So, John, do you, would you like to add to that? Because I, I, I mean, I, I agree entirely with what Sebastian has said in terms of specialization and centralization, patient selection, which is clearly the case. But equally, on the other hand, I think it is true to say that even in the, the most experienced centers and surgeons' hands, the evidence is that fundoplication isn't without its problems, which is one of the reasons why it's not established as uh, such a popular uh, procedure as you'd imagine the population demand would have it. So do you have any any you know comments on what Sebastian said? Well, I think first and foremost, is I, I agree, I think a lot of the problem and a lot of the reputation of, of fundoplication stems from the fact that, you know, it was not regulated meaning any surgeon anywhere could do it um, or try to do it, I should say. And because of that, the outcomes were were at times terrible. Um, and so I think a lot of the reputation stems from that. Now, you know, the truth always lies in the middle, and there are some issues with fundoplication. Depending on the type of fundoplication and the degree of fundoplication, you know, what it's doing is turning that weak valve potentially into a one-way valve. So the extreme fundoplication, the Nissen fundoplication, which is a 360-degree wrap around the esophagus, really creates a one-way valve. And because of that, patients don't belch or vomit normally. They get gas and they get bloating, you know, which is pretty significant side effects. Now, some of the other fundoplications, the partial fundoplications, don't create as much of that one-way barrier, and so patients are able to belch a little easier, vomit a little easier, and don't seem to get as much of the gas and the and the bloating. And so, you know, like I said, I think there is some truth into the side effect profile with fundoplication, but again, I think the main problem over the years with fundoplication is you had many surgeons doing this procedure that, that really didn't do it a lot, uh, and therefore their outcomes weren't weren't all that good. So that's fundoplication. That's the traditional, uh, if you like, the, the procedure that's been performed as a laparoscopic operation for over 20, nearly 25 years now. But in more recent years, there have been new technologies brought 
to bear. Lynx, of course, is um, probably foremost amongst those. It was originally developed with the help of your predecessor, Tom Demista. Perhaps, John, you could just give us an idea of what Lynx is, where it fits into the treatment options, what the pros and cons are. And I guess also a little bit about the evidence, because there are still quite a lot of people out there who claim uh, that there isn't a sufficient evidence base to support the use of Lynx. Well, Lynx, you know, first and foremost, Lynx was... uh developed to overcome some of the problems associated with fundoplication, specifically that one-way valve issue that I was talking about earlier. And so what Lynx is, is just a little magnetic bracelet uh, that we place around the end of the esophagus. The force of attraction of those magnets wanting to come together uh, keeps that weak valve closed to prevent reflux. But the force of swallowing or belching or vomiting will cause the beads to spread apart. So patients, in essence, can do all the normal physiologic activities, so to speak. And so, you know, who is the right candidate for links? Well, you know, most patients with reflux potentially will qualify for it. There are some caveats to that. Um, One hard, fast contraindication is metal allergies, specifically titanium. Um, The device is made entirely out of titanium, and so obviously somebody with an allergy to that can't have it. The other thing that I would say is a strong contraindication to this, uh, or at least precaution, is uh, strength issues with the esophagus. So it gets back to that testing I was talking about earlier where we want to assess the strength of the esophagus. That Lynx device is going to create forces of attraction at that, that the esophagus needs to overcome to get the device to open. If a patient's esophagus is too weak, obviously they're not going to do well with the links and it will create a lot of difficulty swallowing or what we call dysphagia. In regards to the the data surrounding links, links has got well over a hundred publications. It has a randomized controlled trial comparing it to the proton pump inhibitors in control of regurgitation and reflux symptoms. Um, It has been very well studied. It has full FDA approval here in the United States. And so I I think there is a tremendous amount of data surrounding links to justify its use in really most of the reflux patients short of those with a weak esophagus uh, or metal allergies. And and Sebastian, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, in particular, the pros and cons of fundoplication versus links, which for most people is what the options um, for surgery are. I mean, what you see in the daily practice, again, is many patients after a links procedure, they, especially the first days and weeks, are much easier for them because it seems that the so-called uh, complete valve problem we see with Nissen fundoplication, as, uh, as John just described it, they don't have it. So what they do is they start their food intake like six hours after surgery. They just have a regular dinner on the day of surgery. And this is a big, big difference compared to the patient that just underwent Nissen fundoplication because at least with us, they have to to stick to fluids and soft uh, soft food for the first five to 10 days. So what I want to say is that especially the so-called patient management directly after surgery, there is a big, big difference. And many patients 
really experience this as a big pro for the links um, for the links procedure. There is also some disadvantage, which is a little bit related to the implantation itself. So patients have to be a little aware what kind of um, magnetic resonance uh, examinations they do after implantation. So they have to be a little bit aware what kind of intensity concerning the magnetic radiation they use afterwards. But this is one of the very, very little and very few disadvantages I would see uh, to links comparing uh, to Nissen fund or to comparing to fund application. Let's just, just move on a little bit then to the final uh, options currently available, which is the endoscopic treatments. I've been hearing about this for, for many, many years, so-called peroral uh, treatments, one kind or another. Um, they're effectively stretter and endoscopic fundification. Um, so these are appealing insofar as they don't actually involve entering the abdomen. They're all done through the, the mouth. Stretter's been around for quite a long time. John, just tell us um, uh, from your perspective a little bit about stretter, a little bit about endoscopic fundification and where you see it, it fitting and the evidence, I guess, compared with, with the, 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 um, the surgical procedures we've just discussed. Well, there's been a, a lot of things that have come down the pipeline, a lot of procedures that have been done endoscopically to try to stop reflux. Um, all of them, in one way or another, try to tighten up that lower esophageal sphincter. And for the most part, they all do a pretty good job at tightening up that lower esophageal sphincter, whether it's the strata, uh, which is the radiofrequency uh, ablation of that area, or some of the endoscopic fundoplication techniques. The problem all of them have had is that they don't do anything to address the problem with the diaphragm, meaning the hiatal hernia. That component to the barrier constitutes probably 50 to maybe as high as 80% of the barrier. And so if you're not doing anything to fix that portion of the problem, you can see where patients aren't going to have complete reflux control. And that, unfortunately, is what we've seen with most of these endoscopic procedures is they really don't provide complete reflux control because they're not addressing the whole problem. So, again, across the board from strata to the endoscopic fund applications, they do an okay job at trying to recreate that sphincter. But, you know, to make them truly work, you've got to address the hiatal hernia or the diaphragm problem. Yeah. And I guess that's uh, perhaps the the key component of this problem, which most people don't understand, because they always assume that the hiatal hernia is the length of it from top to bottom. And as you said earlier, John, the problem is very much um, more to do with how the muscles of the diaphragm around the hiatus actually work, rather than how much the stomach is going up and down. Um, and certainly the two need to be considered together. So Sebastian, you're now confronted with a patient. He or she has been through their workup. You've talked through uh, all the indications for surgery. They want to go to have something done. How do you weigh up the pros and cons of the different procedures we've discussed? Who do you think is most appropriate for one or another? Or perhaps you think they're all just the same. Just give us an idea of the kind of conversations for choices and consenting that you will have with these patients? Well, this is, a, this is a key question, and you really have this every day in your daily, in your, in your practice. 
I mean, for me, there's two options. The one is fund application. The second one is links. As John Lippim, I'm not really convinced in the endoscopic procedures. I think there is a small amount of patient, a very, very selected uh, group of patients that might profit, maybe a little short time, but might profit from endoscopic procedures. But however, this question, concerning this question, for me, there's two options for patients who really want to go for surgical anti-reflux therapy, and this is fundoplication and links. And I always start telling patients that if you have a look at, at, at one-year results, you will almost have the same results. You will have the same outcome um, in most of the patients. And I always tell them that the way to the one-year might be very different, and maybe the way for them might be easier with having a link system compared to fundoplication. This is the one point. And the second one is what I tell them is that many, many patients, many people have problems having implants in some way. So if a patient once mentions something like this, I would never implant a, a link system. So this is one, one of the contraindications for me. And the second one is we don't really know how Today, we don't really know how links works in patients that have real severe motility problems with their esophagus. So this is the only reason why I would try or why I, I would avoid doing the links procedures. Um, for all other patients, for me, links and Nissen are equal. And I think this is something you really have to decide individually. Today, we don't in my opinion, we don't have any any data. We don't have any clear selection criteria to really tailor patients to either for links or for application. In my opinion, there are some soft parameters where I sometimes prefer links. This is for especially in patients that are obese um, due to the fact that uh, the scar tissue development with the link system might avoid having a recurrence of hiatal hernia. Um, I like implanting links in patients that are very sportive, especially the ones who like lift, weightlifting for the same reason. And I have personally have, living in Vienna, I have a very good experience implanting links in uh, patients in singers because um, they have... In my opinion, they profit from the maybe less invasive procedure around their diaphragm. But this is soft parameters, and this is what you experience in the daily practice. John, what do you think? Yeah, it's a you know it's a good question. I, I agree with Sebastian that you know the endoscopic procedures really, I would say, aren't ready for prime time, so to speak, because of their inability to fix the. The problem with the diaphragm, I think the use for them is a very small group, um, and that group would be those that don't have any issue with their diaphragm, which is a very difficult bunch to identify because of our, our testing is not as sensitive as we would like uh, it to be. So then it boils down to, to links versus fund application. The two are very equal in their reflux control. Multiple different publications and studies have compared them you know, sort of head to head and found that the, the reflux control is very similar between links and, and any version really of the fund application. You know, the choice to me boils down to 
a, a number of things. One is the strength of their esophagus, uh, making sure they don't have any metal allergies and making sure they don't have any need for high-powered MRIs going forward. Those, those patients aren't going to be candidates for the links. Short of that, um, I present both to the patient. You know, there's some patients that don't want a, a foreign body, i.e. an implant, the links around their esophagus. And so I present it to them and, and really let them decide, have them decide. Okay, well, I think that's really clear. And I'm, I'm relieved to see there's a significant consensus. Everybody really agrees. I think the, the key thing for me is being able to provide the choices. And too often people aren't given the choice. Uh, and I think that for me is the, uh, the essence of this discussion. But let's just move on then to the relationship of surgery with 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 Barrett's. So uh, this is a question that which I guess we're all asked all the time. Patients are diagnosed with Barrett's. Uh, they then they then come to see a surgeon on the basis that they think that having an operation is going to prevent them de- getting cancer, getting esophageal cancer, because of course we know reflux causes Barrett's, and Barrett's in a small proportion of people will develop into cancer. So so what what do you say to people i mean john what do you say to people in this situation which is a it's quite a difficult conversation sometimes you know it is and here's where i i think we are lacking you know some data i mean obviously reflux leads to barrett's and what generally causes barrett's to progress to cancer is ongoing reflux so logic would tell you that you know if we can stop the reflux it should at least lower their risk for the development of cancer now Here's where the data is lacking because it's hard to get that sort of long-term follow-up to prove that by stopping the reflux, um, their risk goes down. Having said that, though, we have looked at the ability to get rid of Barrett's. And when we've looked specifically at the use of the Lynx device, what we were seeing there in, in two separate publications is that those patients with at least short areas or short segments of Barrett's after they got their links, it was upwards of around 50% of them that that Barrett's went away. It regressed back to, to fairly normal tissue. And again, one would assume that that would also then lower their cancer risk, although, again, we don't have that long-term data to show that. Um, but again, we do have short-term data also with the fundiplication showing the regression of Barrett's uh, in patients after they get a fundiplication. So, I tell patients that this is not the primary reason that they should consider surgery because of that lack of long-term data, um, but it is something that they should be aware of. Sebastian, I think bringing things to a close now with a couple more thoughts. Firstly, I think what you both said quite clearly is that for a potentially significant group of patients, surgery can really make a big difference to their lives and can you know truly change their lives for the better and yet very few people as a as a proportion of that bigger group actually ever get to see a surgeon and get to discuss having an operation what do you think the marine barriers are and and what what would you do to try to help more patients well this is this is a good question we know that less than i think it's a half percent in europe for example a half a percent of patients that have uh, reflux disease and are not really satisfied with their treatment at the moment, which is mainly medical treatment or maybe no treatment, 
really are referred or really look for a surgeon? I think there's two ways. The first one is uh, it will change from itself because today patients are really different when you compare them to 20 years ago. They, you know, they have Google, they go to the internet, which is generally maybe sometimes a little dangerous. However, they're much more informed and they they are much more likely to traveling a lot and hearing like three, four, five ideas and and opinions. So I think many things will happen from alone, from from itself. The second thing is things like John Lippan did in the in the U.S. and Nick Wee too did in Europe. I think it is very important to inform, and it is very important to very specifically inform, like creating societies, creating platforms, creating podcasts as we do today. So I think it is really our job. Um, we, the ones who are really convinced about the advantages of anti-reflux surgical treatments, we really have to inform and inform and inform. And this is, my opinion, what is going to change uh, the mindset within the next years. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I think it's much around empowering patients with the knowledge themselves. John, you're a fabulous communicator. How do you think we can widen the net and help more people with surgery? Well, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, raising awareness uh, about the options to treat reflux is, is first and foremost. But that goes beyond patients. I, I think there needs to be a tremendous amount of education to the primary care, the gastroenterologists, who still associate surgical treatment of reflux to this old-fashioned major surgery with major complications and major side effects. Uh, that simply just isn't the case anymore. Everything is done minimally invasive, very low complication rates, and a very acceptable mild side effect profile. And so I think it's raising awareness across the board um, from physicians to, to patients. And, you know, the internet is a powerful tool. There's good and bad in it. Um, and so I think the more accurate information we get out there onto the internet uh, for patients and the physicians themselves, I think will help move this bar forward. Okay. So, and, and then the final thing that I thought we, we should just think about is what's on the horizon. There are some new surgical procedures which are, are being introduced I think we did talk a little bit earlier on about increasing specialization and centralization. I'd just be interested in your thoughts of, of where you think the treatment of reflux might be in a decade from now. Um, let's start with the European perspective. Well, I guess that's, that's me. I think in 10 years from today, there is not going to be any surgeons doing anti-reflux surgery less than 100 times a year. I think... The future of anti-reflux surgery is in centers. And I think there will be much more tools and much more devices that will be implanted and wrapped and, and uh, swapped or whatever um, to, to get over the problems and get over maybe the side effects of uh, conservative or maybe old anti-reflux um, surgery, you know, we tried to do it with uh, electric impulses and we will try to do it with implanting small balls 
So there's many ways that where the technical details of anti-reflux surgery will change within the next years. For me, the most important changes will be that we hope that there will be no more anti-reflux surgery for every surgeon. And John, your thoughts? Well, I think a couple. Um, one thing we really haven't talked about uh, here today is really the use of PPIs to treat this disease. And I think it's important for patients and and physicians to understand that these medications, although very effective at, at treating the symptoms of reflux, aren't stopping reflux. So a patient that has 100 episodes of reflux uh, off their PPI are going to have 100 episodes of reflux on their PPI. And it, the reason that's important to understand is because, because of that ongoing reflux, even though the symptoms are better, the medications haven't been shown to really stop the progression of the disease meaning the disease continues to worsen over the years. Their risk for development of Barrett's or cancer is still there. These medications have not been shown to lower that risk. So I, I think, you know, first and foremost, everyone needs to understand that. And I, I think if they do understand that, I, I agree with Sebastian, we will see a lot more patients coming for anti-reflux surgery or, or some sort of procedure. So I, I think that's number one. Number two is I think what we'll see coming down the pipeline is is maybe even better ways to treat the, the problem with the lower esophageal sphincter. But I think the big move forward in the next 10 years will be better ways to treat the hiatal hernia. Our main Achilles heel as surgeons in treating this disease is that hiatal hernia. Um, we can fix the hiatal hernia, but we have a fairly significant recurrent hiatal hernia rate. And so to me, the major advance here, hopefully in the next 10 years, maybe less, will be lower recurrence rates of that hiatal hernia by better techniques to fix it. And, and John, what have you in mind when you talk about better techniques? Are there any specific things that you, you're talking about? Well, this maybe gets down a little bit into the weeds on this, but you know, when we look at this from a structural standpoint, um, what studies have shown and what we have found is that there is a defect, a structural defect in the diaphragm, specifically uh, in regards to the amount of collagen that a patient has in their connective tissues. And so reflux to me in hiatal hernias boils down to it's a connective tissue disease. And so we as surgeons, we go in there and we sort of tighten up that, that area of the diaphragm. But what we're doing is we're sewing kind of bad tissue back together. Well, you can imagine that that bad tissue doesn't heal normally because they've got a genetic problem with the production of collagen. And so the focus right now, at least for us, has been on looking at ways to improve that healing process, improve the production of collagen. And so we're currently working on a couple of different things to, to do that, to improve the healing of that area. And I think that's where the major advance will come if we can come up with something to restore a more normal healing process in that patient. Well, that's certainly something very much to look forward to. Um, thank you both very much indeed. That was a, a great discussion and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. So many thanks once again. <laughs>